Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We praise you again for your love, your grace, your infinite mercy. You're such a great and an awesome God. We thank you for the Old Testament, Lord, that it just magnifies the person of Jesus Christ. We see you so clearly. As we look at books that are written hundreds, if not even thousands of years before you came to earth, and Lord, they make a, a clear picture of who you are. We see it ahead of time. We just thank you for your prophecy. And we thank you, Lord, that we can trust your word and that it applies to our lives today. So we just ask right now that you would be our teacher, that you would go before us. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Now last week, we looked at the significance of the last plague that was going to come on Egypt. And we talked about the instigation of Passover. And the Passover was, was coming into existence. We're going to look a little more at that today. But I wanted to just catch you up again by how awesome the Bible is, how awesome the Old Testament is, in that it reveals the person of Jesus Christ in such a clear way. A couple of things that we saw last week is that, and we're going to see again tonight, so I won't go too much in depth, was the shedding of blood and how they had to take the firstborn spotless lamb and that lamb had to be put to death. And when they, when they killed that lamb, they would bring that lamb into the house. The, the lamb would live in the house from the 10th day of the month to the 14th day of the month. We talked about how many hundreds of years later, that on the 10th of Nisan, which was the day the Passover was insti instituted in, in uh, Exodus chapter 12, we see that's the exact day that Jesus marched into Jerusalem. So on the 10th of Nisan, when they went out and they were picking out the lamb that they would use to sacrifice to the Lord, and they would have to slit its throat and take the blood and sprinkle the blood on the doorpost and on the mantle so that the angel of death would pass over, the very day that they were going out to pick out that lamb, the same day, 10th of Nisan, would be the same day when Jesus would come in riding on a donkey. Now, they would have that lamb in their house for four days. And what's interesting about that is during those four days, they would inspect the lamb to make sure that the lamb was not sick, that it truly was a spotless lamb. And they would inspect the lamb for those four days before they took it in to sacrifice it. Well, we know that Jesus came, and for four days that he was inspected by the Jews, by the Sadducees, by the Pharisees, and even by the Romans. And so that, that lamb, that Passover lamb, is a perfect picture of Jesus Christ because the day that they would then slit the throat of the lamb on Passover was the very day that Jesus was then crucified. So we see that the crucifixion was depicted in the Passover. And then lastly, what I shared with you last week was the analogy of what, ha what still happens today with the Jews. That when they, when they celebrate Passover, they have a Passover feast. When they have the Passover feast between the first and the second cup of blessing, they take out three matzahs. We talked about this last week, so if you're here, it's a repeat. But they take out these three matzahs that are all made of the same material, the same type of bread, unleavened bread. And they take it out, and then out of those matzahs, they pull the middle bread piece out. Again, all made of the same thing, and they pull the middle piece out, then they break it in half, and they wrap it in a piece of linen, and they hide that piece of bread and then all the children come in and go to try, try and find it. And whoever finds it, there's great rejoicing and there's a celebration and there's a big prize for the one who finds it. Now what's interesting to me is they do this and the name uh, in, in, in Greek means I came. So this thing that they do, they call it the I came. They, they use the Greek name for it. But they, they do this and they have no idea what it means. Now we know that it's very clear that... These three represent the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They take the second piece out. Who's the second person in the Trinity? That's Jesus Christ. They take the second piece out, they break it in half. That's a picture of Jesus' death on the cross. They didn't take that broken piece and put it in a piece of linen. What was Jesus wrapped in when they put him into the tomb? They wrapped him in linen cloth. And then they take it and they hide it. And then someone come, these children come and when they find it, there's a great celebration when they realize 
that he has been resurrected, right? The pointing to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Jews still observe this today. And I had a few of you come up to me afterwards, say that you've been to a Seder or a Passover before, and you said, that's exactly what they do. And it's amazing that they do that, and they have no idea why they do it. But all of it, just like all the Old Testament, is pointing to Jesus Christ. So we're going to look a little more in depth at that this, uh, this evening as we continue on. And so here's what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread would take a place the week beginning with Passover. Passover was actually the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so there would be that week-long feast when they would celebrate. Then there was a preparation for Passover. We're going to see that tonight. The tenth plague actually taking place, the death of the firstborn. We're going to see the exodus as the, the people are freed after 430 years of bondage. And then lastly, we're going to see regulations that, that were put in place by God for future Passover feasts. So let's begin in verse 15. And we're going to look at the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And we're going to see God give instructions for this feast, this national celebration of redemption from Egyptian bondage. Let's begin in verse 15. And it says, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove the leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Now in the Bible, what does leaven represent? Who knows? Sin. Why? Because leaven, whatever leaven gets into, leaven, yeast, whatever it touches, it infects everything that's in it. You've heard the saying, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And that's exactly the truth. You put a little bit of leaven in, and it brings destruction to everything it touches. It actually decomposes, is what I read, and it breaks down, it breaks down the substance that it touches. It, it, sp- it spreads and it infects everything. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a feast of bread without sin. It was pointing to a sinless existence where you can rejoice in the Lord. Now, the only way that that sinless existence could be possible is there must be the shedding of blood for the remission of sin so that the sin may be taken away. So when does the Feast of Unleavened Bread take place? It takes place on Passover. When does Passover, what does Passover point to? The cross of Christ. So it's only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that we can know a sinless existence Not that we don't sin anymore, but that our sin has been paid for. We've been made righteous in His eyes. We're new creations in Christ. Old old things have passed away. All things have become new. And that can only happen through the Passover lamb, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why the two of them are so closely interlinked. In 1 Corinthians 5.8, it says, Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The absence of yeast, again, suggested that those who were under the safety of the shed blood would be free from the corruption of sin because God would, take, would pay the price on their behalf. So leaven is, a, is sin. And what did sin do? Look what it says here in that verse. And it says, anybody who eats of it, leaven bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. What does sin do to man in his relationship with God? What does it do? It separates us. The reason that Jesus had to come and suffer and die that we might have eternal life is that when when Adam came to earth, Adam had perfect communion with the Father. And he lived in a sinless, perfect place. There was no death, there was no pain, there was no sorrow, there was no suffering. He He didn't age. None of that. Death came because of sin. And because of sin, man was separated from God. We know that God kicked him out of the Garden of Eden. And they were out of the Garden of Eden. They were separated from the Father. We know that there was a point in the Garden of Eden that they hid themselves because they were naked. They didn't know they were naked until they sinned. And now they were ashamed. 
And we know they tried to cover themselves with leaves, but the Lord shed, uh, killed an animal and covered them up with animal skins. The first example of the shedding of blood for the covering of sin is all the way back in the book of Genesis. And so sin is what separates man from God. And so he says, if anybody has leaven, then you'll be cut off from Israel. If anybody has sin that has not been paid for by the Passover lamb, if you cannot celebrate that because of what has been done for you, then you will be cut off from Israel. You'll be cut off from God's people. You can have no relationship with the Lord. Verse 16. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat. So the only, only work that can be done is preparation of food. Only that it may be prepared for you. So a special service was held on the first and the seventh day of the feast, but no work was allowed to be done during this celebration. You know why I believe there's no work allowed to be done? Because it's Jesus Christ's blood on the cross alone that paid the price. Amen? Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. You don't have to do any works to be saved. All you have to do is accept His death on the cross. So when He paid the price... His last words, to talistai, what does it mean in English? It is finished. Not to be continued, right? Amen? It is finished. So the price has been paid, and so that's why that there was no work done during this Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because when we get to heaven, we're going to be in His presence, and it's not going to be because of our work. Now, I want to say this, to balance that. Those of us who've been born again, we do produce good fruit. Amen? By your fruit, they shall know you. So as Christians, we bear good fruit because we have a relationship with Almighty God. But we don't, we don't have to work to earn our salvation. We don't bear good fruit so that God will love us. We bear good fruit because God loves us. Amen? And so there was no work to be done. They had a holy convocation or a celebration celebrating their deliverance out of bondage in Egypt. Verse 17. So you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. Now an everlasting ordinance would be just like Passover, that every year they would remember what the Lord had done for them when He delivered them out of bondage. And, they would, and just like Passover, they would have the Passover feast every year. They would also have the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread every single year to remember what God had done for them, that He had delivered them out of bondage. We have something similar today. We don't have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but we have something similar to the Passover feast. What do we call it? Communion. We have communion in remembrance of what Christ did for us, delivering us from the bondage of sin. And they would have... Passover in remembrance of deliverance from the bondage of Egypt and the Feast of Unleavened Bread in celebration of the fact that they had been delivered. And so this is the same, it's very similar to what we do with communion today. Verse 18. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats of what is leaven that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native in the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. No leaven found in your house. So after we've been delivered, after they've been delivered out of bondage, and they have this feast of celebration with the Lord, there should be no leaven found in their homes. What is this a picture of? To me, this is a picture of the fact that once Christ has come into our life, once our life has been transformed by Him, once we've been delivered and we have a relationship with Him, that we need to cleanse our homes 
of all, of all sin. Now, does that mean we're not going to sin anymore? No, we're going to continue to sin. But the reality is that our home should be a sanctuary. Amen? It should be a place, especially, you know what, starting with you guys. God's called you to be a spiritual leader in your home. If there's things in your home that don't belong there, you need to get them out. Amen? It says they went and they would search to find if there's any leaven anywhere in their house. And when they found it, they threw it out. Just out of fear that somebody might somehow accidentally get a hold of some of that leaven. And you know, we need to do the same thing in our homes. You know, our children, with our wives, with our family, that if there's something in our home that will not honor the Lord, we need to get it out of there. Maybe it's some of the movies or the music or the books that are in your home or whatever it might be. If there's things there that dishonor the Lord, they need to go. Amen? It's God's house. Let's honor Him in it. You know, I'll never forget when I was a teenager. I went to a, a, this is before they had Air One and a lot of good Christian music, but I'm without excuse. But I used to listen to secular music. And I worked at a record store, and nobody that I knew had more records than me. I mean, I had, I, I worked at a record store. I got free records. I had just more albums. I had cases of albums. And I went to the secular concert, and this guy just totally was bagging on God. Was ripping God. And I'm sitting there, and the Holy Spirit, you know, did one of those, right? You know how that feels, right? Holy Spirit head slap. It's called the conviction. Oh, I'm sitting there, and people are cheering as he's blaspheming God. And I'm like, what am I doing here? And I went home, and I got all my records out, and I should have broke them all, but instead I drove over to my friend's house and gave him all my albums. Drove to my friend's house and go, dude, here you go. He's like, oh, right on, you know. And I gave him all my albums. I had like 200 albums. I gave them all away. And you know what, though? The reality is that God had to do a work in my heart for me to want to cleanse my, my room of that stuff. It wasn't until the Holy Spirit moved on my heart that I saw a need to get rid of it. And the same thing needs to happen with us. We need to get the leaven out. If there's things, again, that aren't honoring God in your home, then get rid of them. You know, my wife and I, we've been married a few years, and, and she had some secular CDs, and they weren't even bad things. You know, from the world's perspective, some of them didn't even have words on them. But, you know, she got a conviction that, you know what, if, if the music doesn't worship and honor God, then I don't want it in the house. And she, I came home one day, and I, I opened the trash, and there was all these busted-up CDs in there. And it was the Lord, just put it on her heart. That stuff's got to go. Some of it was saxophone music. So it was, again, but and her heart was, you know what, if I'm going to play music, I want it to draw me into the presence of God. And so if it doesn't, I'm getting rid of it. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in us. And as we look back at the Passover, right, the deliverance, we should say, Lord, I want my life to be set apart to you. And so this leaven will cut off any man or woman from fellowship with God, and no matter what his family heritage or religious upbringing that he may have, because look what it says there. It says, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. So he's saying, look, whether it's an Egyptian that eats the leaven or it's an or it's, it's an Israelite, it doesn't make any difference. It's going to separate you from God. And a lot of times we think, well, you know, I'm a preacher's kid, right? So I, I, I'm, I'm in automatically, right? I mean, I've heard people say that, well, my son's a, pre, you know, my son's a priest. I got a free ticket to heaven, you know? Like somehow God has grandchildren. The reality is that each one of us must have our own personal, intimate relationship with God. Amen? And he says, you know what? I don't care what your heritage is. I don't care what your background is. If you take that leaven, it will separate you from God for all eternity. So our sin must be paid for. Either we pay or we let God pay. Verses 21 through 28, the preparation for Passover. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take the lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. Now last week when we looked at this, the Lord was giving the message to Moses. Saying, Moses, here's what you need to do. You need to go tell your people, and this is what needs to happen. And what I love is, we see the obedience of Moses. Moses calls in all the elders, and he's obedient to God's command from verse 3, and he tells them to kill 
the Passover lamb. Just as the Lord had provided sacrifice for Isaac, when Isaac was up on Mount Moriah, and he took Isaac up onto, up onto the mountain, and he says that he was there, and he, and, and he says, well, where's the sacrifice, Father? And he says, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. We know that the Lord provided a ram caught in the thicket, and as he was just about to, to put the knife through his son, he said, stop. Now I know you won't withhold anything from me. And he brought the ram out and sacrificed the ram. Well, in this case, what we see here is that they're going to have to go and, and grab this lamb, which would be sacrificed on their behalf. And they would have to take that lamb into their home for the four-day inspection that we talked about earlier. And Moses is faithful to take that word to the children of Israel. You know, it's one thing for us to receive the word from the Lord. It's another thing to take that word and deliver it to those that God has given us to minister to. If you're a mom here, God's called you to minister to your kids. If you're a dad, God's called you to minister to your wife and your kids. If you're in ministry of any kind, God's called you to deliver that word. So receiving it from the Lord is one thing, but then we need to be bringing it and giving it out as well. And that's what Moses did. Verse 3, the Lord said, this is what you need to do, Moses. And here we see Moses being faithful and delivering that message to Israel. Verse 22, and you shall take a bunch of hyssop. Dip it in blood that is in the basin, and strike it to the lintel and two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. Now, hyssop was a common bush. It was like a bushy plant. And it was used in Israel's rites of purification. If you look in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 14, they took the hyssop and they would kill a bird and they would take the hyssop plant and they would dip it into the, to the blood of the bird and then they would sprinkle it on a leper after a leper had been cleansed. It was, let, it was signifying that this leper's leprosy had gone away and this is how they would signify it by taking this hyssop branch and sprinkling blood upon the leper. Now it's interesting to me that leprosy in the Bible is a representation of sin. And someone who had been cleansed of sin, there needed to be sprinkling of blood, right? Because whenever you see in the Bible, the only way that sin can be eradicated is through the shedding of blood. There's no other way. One way God said to get to heaven, Jesus is the only way. Amen? And it's only through the shedding of blood can there be the remission of sin. Not through good work, not through going to church 9,000 times, not by crawling on your, on your knees across jagged rocks to Mecca, I mean, nothing's going to get you there outside of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There's no other way. There's no other hope. There's no other peace. And so they would take this hyssop and they would sprinkle it. Well, here we're going to see that they're doing the same thing. They reach down and they take the blood and they put it on the doorposts, on both sides of the doorposts, on the lintel. And we know that the blood was in a basin at the foot of the door. So there's blood at the feet, there's blood at both sides of the door, and there's blood at the head of the door. Now, what is that obviously a picture of? It's the cross. Now, what's interesting to me is when they told these people to do this, this would sound crazy. Can you imagine someone coming over to your house and, and, and telling you, hey, you know, uh, there's this major play going on, and you've got to take a jar of jelly beans and put it out on, your, on top of your doorstep, and if you do that, then, then the disease won't come. You'd be like, dude, get out of here. Take your feng shui and go home, right? I mean, you'd say, forget it. That ain't, that ain't real. But the difference here is that this was actually delivered by God, and it didn't make sense. We take blood and we put it on the door? For what? what? What's that all about? They didn't understand. It didn't make sense to them. This is thousands of years before crucifixion existed. Or over 1,500 years anyway, before there was such a thing as crucifixion. So they're putting blood on the door, and why are they doing it? They're doing it out of faith. 
They're doing it even when they don't understand. They're saying, you know what? Moses is, the, is the, the man God's using. He's delivered to us that we need to do this, and we need to honor the Lord. I don't fully understand, but I'm going to honor God anyway. You know what? There are times in our life when we're not going to fully understand. Amen? When it just doesn't make sense. I don't know why this is happening, but Lord, I trust you. Lord, I, it, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't even know what's coming next, but Lord, I trust you. I talked about it Sunday morning when I would take my daughter in to get a shot. And here's my little girl, and she doesn't understand why loving great dad, you know, the daddy that bounces her on its knee, and she'd see me come in the room, and she'd light up because I'm the human jungle gym, right? And she looks forward to daddy coming home. But then daddy comes in and takes her into this cold room and takes her shirt off and sets her down on a cold table, and some man comes in with a pointy, pointy metal thing and jabs her with it, and dad's just sitting there letting it happen. Well, what's up with that, dad? You know, and my daughter's screaming at the top of her lungs because she doesn't understand. Because I'm dad, and I look at her, and I see her say, you know, Ashley, I don't want you to get polio, or I don't want to get you whatever the vaccination's for. I don't even know. But, but we're doing this to protect you in the future. But she doesn't understand. All she knows is some mean guy came in, she's sitting on a cold table, and she got poked, and dad was standing there watching it. But what I can do is, like I talked about on Sunday, I can pick her up and hold her in my arms, and I can comfort her. And I can give her the peace that surpasses all understanding. Amen? And that's what happens with us sometimes. Sprinkle the blood on the doorpost, but I don't understand. But this is what the Lord wants us to do. Well, okay, then we're going to do it. And Lord, I don't fully understand, but Lord, I trust you. And he will give us the peace that surpasses all understanding when we're in situations where from our intellect, it just doesn't make sense. How in the world can putting blood there keep us from dying? I don't understand. But we're going to do it anyway. And if they didn't do it, it had heavy-duty consequences. And it's interesting to me that while the angel of the Lord could no doubt have differentiated between an Israelite and an Egyptian walking down the street, what does God say in verse 23? Well, the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, or at the end of verse 22. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. And then, for the Lord will pass through the and strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into the houses to strike you. Now, here's what's interesting to me. Obviously, the angel of the Lord can come down and recognize those who are from Egypt and those who are Israelites, and he could just strike down all the Egyptians, and they wouldn't have to be in their home. But why does he command that they remain in their homes? Because without the covering of blood, there can be no sacrifice in your behalf. So if you're not under the blood of Christ, if you're not within the shed blood of Jesus Christ, in that place of safety, then we, you will surely die. There's only one place that will deliver us. So we must be under the blood, under the shed blood of Christ, under that mantle. And he wanted to make it clear to them that there was no other way. And he wanted to intimate to them their safety was based upon the sprinkling of blood, not their national birthright. Not because they're Israelites, but because the shed blood had been paid for them. As long as they were in the house, they were safe. If you went out of the house, you would have to face the angel of death alone, resulting in your death. The only place of safety in this world is in Jesus Christ. Amen? The Bible says, abide in me. Abide in me and I'll abide in you. Here's the thing, you guys. A lot of times as Christians, we point back to a day when we, we walked an aisle and we prayed a prayer or we did something or there was some emotion that we had and we point to that as being the reason that we know that we're saved. And I want to tell you that right off the bat, first of all, I absolutely believe that once saved, always saved. I do not believe you can lose your salvation. But here's what I do believe. 
I believe there are a lot of people that walked an aisle and prayed a prayer at an emotional moment that didn't mean it, and they don't know God. And you know what? The Bible says, by your fruit they shall know you. And here's the key. Is there fruit? Are you abiding? You know, I've got two brothers who I love a great deal. And that's the question I ask them. Well, I, you know, I, me and Jesus were like this. You know, I prayed a prayer. Well, wait a minute. You know, the get out of hell free card in your wallet's not going to be good enough. I mean, the reality is that there must be fruit. There must be a change. There must be a transformation. I got a guy I work with right now. He says he's a Christian. But there's no fruit. And living with his girlfriend for 12 years, drinking and partying all the time. He's got a foul mouth, but oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Wait a minute. Are you abiding in Christ? Is Jesus Christ your best friend? Do you know Him in an intimate and a personal way, or do you just know about Him? Did you just walk an aisle at a Billy Graham crusade and mumble some words because you were emotional and walk away? Remember the parable of the sower. It's the seed that bears much fruit. That's the key. There must be some fruit, not just mouthing words. You know, I could bring 50 people in off the street, give them all 100 bucks, and they'll pray any prayer I want them to pray. But it doesn't mean that they're sincere in their heart, that there's been a transformation. We must be abiding in Christ. As Raul Reese would say, if you're not abiding, man, you're not going. I mean, that's what he tells us, right? If you're not abiding, you're not going, man. If you're not walking with God, if you're not filled with His Spirit, if you're not in love with the Lord, then don't be so, so assured of your salvation. Again, that, to me, that doesn't contradict once saved, always saved in my mind at all. My only thing would be that there are some that say they walked an aisle 20 years ago, but there's never been any fruit. I would say that ne- that person never knew God. They never came into a, a real relationship with the Lord. So he says, you must abide in me. We must be in Christ. We must be in the safety of that house, covered with his shed blood. Then and only then do we have the assurity of salvation. I can tell you right now, guys, I'm going to heaven. I'm going. People ask me, you going to heaven? Absolutely. Not because I'm a good guy, but because he's a great God. Amen? Because he suffered and died that I might have eternal life. Christianity is not a hope so, it's a no so. Amen? When people say, I hope so, I get worried. I, well, wait a minute, you hope so? You're doubting the word of God when you say that. Amen? If you've given your life to the Lord, you can know so. And you know what? As long as I'm talking about no decision is a decision when it comes to God. Amen? If you're standing on train tracks and a train's coming and you're going, well, I haven't decided yet, that's a decision. Amen? Because if you stand there long enough, you're, you're going to ra- get raked by a train, right? And so that's a decision. And notice, well, I haven't made a decision about God yet. Yes, you have. You've decided against Him. You're either for me or you're against me. You're either abiding in that house, and when the angel of death passes over, you're delivered, or you say, you know what, I haven't made up my mind yet, and you're standing out in the middle of the street. The angel of death will come. So we must be abiding in Him, resting in Him, trusting in Him, and through Him alone can we know salvation. Verse 24, And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. Verse 25, it shall come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he has promised, that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say, it is Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our household. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Now, one of the, what's the one main major purpose of the Passover feast going forward? It would be to remember what Christ had done. You know what? I love the fact, and I know it's, it's God that makes our kids this way. I love the fact that kids are so inquisitive. Have you ever met a kid that didn't ask questions? kid doesn't exist. They all do. Where did the trees come from, Dad? How come the sky's blue? I don't know. 
But I mean, how come the sky is blue? What, what, you know, who put the stars? And you know, the reality is, though, that all of those questions, and I love them, all of those questions really give an opportunity to point our kids to Jesus Christ. Where the trees come from? God made them. Why is the sky blue? Because God made it that way. Who put the stars in the sky? God did. Who's this God we're talking about? Tell me more about, Mom, Dad, how come you, what's, you know, I see you guys go up there and you get the wafer and you get the juice and you sit down and, you know, what, what is that all about? Oh, it's communion. Well, what's communion? Well, son, it's us remembering that Jesus came and suffered and died in our place that we might have eternal life. That the perfect Lamb of God died. He was broken. He was beaten. He was scourged. And He suffered in our place because we're sinners and He paid the price for us. So this is what the Passover feast was all about. It was the remembrance of that. And it was so that the children would come, as it says in that verse, the children would come and when they would ask you, you'd be able to point back and say, it's because God delivered us. And so it was an ordinance that pointed the family back to God. And I think those are great things to have. Have things that point the family back to God. And that's exactly what was happening here. Verse 27, second half, it says, So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. So how did the people receive Moses' words? When Moses brought this word and said, you're going to have to go get a lamb, and then once you get the lamb, you're going to have to slit its th- keep it in your house for four days, and then slit its throat, and then take a hyssop branch, and sprinkle the blood on the doorpost, how did they respond? How did they respond to his word? This is the key, you guys. How do we respond to the word of God? How do we respond? Do we ignore it? Do we act like it's just one of many books? Look what that says that they did in verse 27. So the people bowed their heads and they worshipped. So the first thing they did is they worshipped in response. In submission and obedience, they responded to the word of God. They bowed their heads, signifying their submission to the word of Moses. Verse 27, or 28, excuse me. Then the children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So not only did they bow their heads and worship and respond to the word of God in submission to it, but they went out and they did it. The Bible says to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. The highest form of worship is not singing praise songs, although that is an awesome form of worship. It's not reading the Bible, though that can be an awesome form of worship. The Bible tells me clearly that the highest form of worship is obedience. It's saying, Lord, I trust you. I trust your word. I believe what you say, and I believe it so much I'm going to honor you by obeying your word. Highest form of worship. So they responded with worship and obedience. And there can be no greater way to respond than the word of God. How do you respond to God's word? In submission and obedience or in rebellion? Unwilling to surrender? Giving reasons and excuses for why God's word doesn't apply to you? Well, that doesn't really apply to me. We don't really understand my circumstances. Well, you know, I, my life's been kind of a mess growing up. And, you know, you know I, I come from a dysfunctional family. So the rule, those rules don't really apply to me. You know what? Adam and Eve, first family, Cain killed Abel. How much more dysfunctional do you want than that? First family, one brother killed the other, okay? So you don't have any excuses and point at your family anymore. Amen? You know what? You've got a heavenly Father who loves you, no matter what's happened in your life. And instead of making excuses for why you don't want to turn to God, our, our struggles in life ought to make us run to God, instead of making excuses for why we don't want to run to God. It's interesting to me that earlier, when they had come to them, how did they respond to Moses earlier? Do you guys remember? The Israelites, what did they do? They murmured. Ah, man, you brought more more heartache to us. Now we have to make bricks without straw. Oh, man, it's all your fault. Man, I wish you'd never come. And now all of a sudden, they're worshiping, and, 
and they're honoring and obeying. What happened between, man, I wish you hadn't come to worshiping? You know what happened? Ten plagues. That's what happened, right? Ten plagues. And they went, oh, whoa, God's real. Whoa. Well, Moses got a stick, and man, all flies are coming, the lice is coming, and water's turning. And they walked, and they lived through a few of them. And you know what? Sometimes it's when we go through the trials and the struggles of life, I, not sometimes, I believe that's the, the time that we get to know God best. Uh, down at one of the, uh, at the pastor's conference, one of the guys said something was so powerful. He taught the 23rd Psalm, and he taught about, you know, you know we, we, when you lay down in green pastures, you love your shepherd. You know, when everything's perfect, you're lying down in green pastures, money in the bank, job's going great, kids are healthy, ministry's good, everything in your life's just wonderful. And he said, you know what, though, when you're lying down in green pastures, a lot of times you, lo- you love the shepherd. But someone will come and say, how's the shepherd? Oh, I love the shepherd. Where is he? I'm not really, he's around or somewhere. Life is good. But then when you walk, then the Bible says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But when you're walking through that valley, when things get difficult, you love God when you're on the mountaintop, but you get to know God when you're in the valley because you're hanging on to him every step of the way. Amen? You're walking through the valley, the shadow of death. Things are difficult. Where are you turning? Every morning, every day, all day long. Lord, my finances. Lord, I need your help. Lord, I don't know how I'm going to pay the rent. Lord, I need your help. Lord, oh, my marriage. I'm going through difficulty. Lord, I need your help. My health. I've just been diagnosed with cancer. Lord, I need you. And you know what? When we go through difficulty, it causes us to hang on to the Lord. And I think that's what happened here. Those plagues came. They walked through some of those plagues. Then they saw the plagues falling on them. And then, whoa, no more murmuring. Oh, we're not murmuring anymore. What do you want us to do? Oh, yeah, okay. Mo- oh, Moses, yeah, that sounds good. We'll do that. Obedience. We're worshiping, right? And what happens is difficulty in life and seeing the power of God will transform somebody. And that's what happened to these guys. Verse 29. And it came to pass at midnight. And the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat in his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose at night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. Then there was a great cry, and that word is wailing, in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Now it's interesting that the plague that came right before this was three days of darkness. Remember that? And it said it was so dark they could feel it. So this heavy darkness has gone away, and now midnight, the following night, middle of the night, midnight, what happens? The angel of death comes, and there's not one house in Egypt that doesn't see death. Not one. In every house in Egypt, somebody's dead. Now, you can imagine, I don't know if any of you have ever been, have you ever been there when somebody found out that someone in their family has died? That's heavy. And usually you run to seek comfort. Well, there was no one to even seek comfort from because every house was experiencing the same thing. Can you imagine the wailing that was going on in Egypt? And the sad part about this is that the Lord had sent Moses all the way back in chapter 4, and he said to him, Israel is my firstborn. If you do not let them go, I'm going to kill your firstborn. And what was the response that he got from Pharaoh? Who's the Lord? Who's the Lord that I should obey him? I don't think he's asking that question anymore right? I think three or four plagues in, he's starting to go, oh, I think that, oh, I better start honoring this Lord a little bit. At least, and he would at least honor until the flies went away or the frogs went away, and then he would be back in rebellion. Well, here we are again, and now this death of the firstborn, each one of the plagues is an opportunity for Pharaoh to repent, and every single time his heart just grew harder and harder and harder. You know what? There's going to be wailing even greater than what happened in Egypt that night, and it's going to happen on Judgment Day. And you know what? It's going to be heavy. 
but every single person who is cast into, the, into hell, where the fire will never be extinguished, weeping and gnashing of teeth, torment and pain for all eternity, every single person that goes there will have had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to know God. They'll say, no, 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 no. Just like Pharaoh. Here's another opportunity. No. Here's another No. And eventually, God is a faithful, a righteous, and a holy God. And no man's going to go to hell without having an opportunity to, to escape it. But men will choose hell. And a vast majority of men and women on this planet will choose hell. That's scary. It's sad. And you know what? As a Christian, every person, every believer this side of heaven should be burdened with every unbeliever this side of hell. Our hearts should be broken for them. We should be reaching out to them and sharing with them the love of God. We've got the antidote to the death serum. Amen? Everybody's dying and we got the antidote. It's Jesus. And so we see here, because of Pharaoh's hard heart, not only did death come to his house, but all of his people, all of his people, death throughout the entire land. And it's interesting to note that they died young, old, rich, poor, king, slaves. It didn't matter. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. Our God's judgment was righteous and it was complete and it came to every home that did not accept him. Verse 31, the Exodus. Then he called to Moses... And Aaron by night said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks, your herds, as you have said, and be gone and bless me. So previously Pharaoh had attempted to negotiate with God. Remember that? The first time that they came, he said, All right, you guys can go, but uh, just go a little ways and stay in the land and you can go make sacrifice. And, and what did he say? No, we're not, we're not doing that. We're all leaving together and we're going completely out of the land and there we will sacrifice unto the Lord. Another plague came by and he came and he said, okay, you can go, but you have to leave your children here. You guys can all go, but leave your children and then you can go ahead and go out and make sacrifice. No, we're all going together. We're all going to leave together. Another plague comes. He says, well, you can all go. You can take your children, take your wives, but now you must leave your cattle, which is your wealth. Leave your money here. Go and serve your God, but don't use your money for Him. Go and serve your God, but don't take your kids with you. Go and serve your God, but stay in the world. And each time Moses said, no, no, no. We're not going to compromise. You know what, guys? You don't negotiate with God. Amen? You don't go to the table and start making deals. Well, here, Lord, here's, here's the deal. I'll serve you, but I'm thinking 4,000 square foot house, Carmel Valley on the golf course. I mean, you do that, Lord. Uh, and, you know, and I've I got to have a babe wife and like three kids and a Ferrari, okay? Ferrari's negotiable, but the other ones i got to have, and then, Lord, I'll serve you. Now that, it, it doesn't work that way, amen? You don't go up and start negotiating with God. Well, Pharaoh had been negotiating with God, and finally, at the death of his own firstborn son, at the wailing of all of Egypt, Pharaoh finally says, no more negotiations. And you know what? We're going to stand before God one day, and there's going to be no more negotiations, amen? And we can either bow and accept Him now, or we can bow and accept Him then. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I take that back. It would be too late to accept Him then, but you still will confess Him then. And so we see here that He says, Go, take your stuff, take your flocks, take your kids, take whatever you want. Just leave. Leave here. Get out of here. You can't negotiate with God. He made that mistake. Pharaoh having experienced the fulfillment of God's original prophecy from Exodus chapter 4 when he told them that if you do not let my firstborn go, I will put your firstborn to death. Finally, he does let Israel go. But look what he says here. This is incredible. At the end of verse 32. He says, You and your herds, he said, and be gone, and bless me also. 
You know, Pharaoh went from, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord to, all right, you guys go ahead and go, and, and could you, like, kick me down a blessing on the way out? Could, you know, could you, you know, he started to realize, you know, the plagues got his attention. This God of the plagues is probably the same God that could give blessings. And maybe I need to ask for a blessing. It's amazing. You get, you know, the drowning atheist theory, man. When things get really difficult, everybody believes in God all of a sudden. Because he's real. And he's created us to have a relationship with him. Bless me also. Even the most pagan of men finally recognized, again, at least for the moment, the true source of plagues and blessings. Verse 33. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out into the land of haste. For they said, we shall, we shall all be dead. They said, get out of here. All the people said, we want all the Israelites, go. Just Get out! If we don't get them out of here, Pharaoh, we're all going to be dead soon. And isn't it amazing, when there's death in your family, how that is the number one thing that makes you realize your own mortality. When somebody that you're close to dies, you realize your mortality more at that moment than any other time. I've had the opportunity to do quite a few funerals. And there's, to me, the greatest witnessing opportunities are weddings and funerals. Why? Because both times, well, especially with a funeral, but both times you have an audience that will sit there and listen that may never other, listen to any other. People at a wedding will sit and listen, right? They don't want to hear it maybe, but they'll listen. At a funeral, they'll listen, and they're looking at somebody that they were near to that's dead now. And they're facing their own mortality. It's right in front of them. What a great opportunity to point people to the Lord. You know, and I'm not recommending that you always do this, but if I do a funeral for somebody that I know, I know did not know the Lord, they always ask me to talk about his life, and I happily do that. I share about their accomplishments, all the things, because the family wants to hear that. I do that. But then in the end, I ask the same question. If your son, your daughter, whoever it might be, if they could come back and talk to you for five minutes, how many of you would like to hear what they would say to you? And every hand always goes up. I say, I know what they would say to you. How, how do you know? And I tell him the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Because the rich man was a man who was wealthy, and Lazarus was a beggar seated at the gate. And every day the rich man went by. And every day the rich man you know, would flip him a coin. But then when they both died, it says that Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man was taken to the place of torment. And the rich man looked across the gulf, and he saw Lazarus, and he said, Lazarus, could you just dip your finger in water and put it on my tongue to bring me just a little bit of relief? And the Lord said, he cannot pass from here to there. Because sin is that gulf. And nobody can pass from one side to the other. Can't be done. And the rich man said, then at least could you go tell my family that this is real. And so what I tell people at funerals is, look, whether the person you know is in heaven or they've been separated from God, no matter where they are, they would want to come back and tell you the very same thing, that Jesus Christ is God that he did suffer and die, that heaven and hell are real places, and that we're all going to spend eternity somewhere. And you know what? A funeral is a place. And so here we are at this, this funeral has happened. There's, their immortality has been thrown up in their face, and they all say, get them out of here. We're all going to die. Get those Israelites out of here. All these plagues, that's enough. Get them out of here. I don't want to see them anymore. And so they're saying, Pharaoh, man, I don't, we don't care what you think anymore. Just get them out of here. Verse 34. So the people took their dough before it had leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes at their shoulders. And the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses. They had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now this is not the Israelites stealing. This is back wages. 430 years in bondage. 
You think the Egyptians might owe him a little bit of money. They never paid him a dime, right? And so now the Lord gives them favor, and they go in and say, give me your gold and silver. And you know what the Egyptians say? Take it all. We don't care. Just get out of here. We don't care what you want now. Before, they weren't willing to just let him go when nothing had happened. Now they're saying, take all our stuff, take everything we have, take our cattle, whatever you want, just get out of here. Just leave. You're bringing torment to our land. We can't take it anymore. We can't deal with your God. And you know what had happened? The three million gods of Egypt, all of a sudden, they weren't so powerful, were they? The God of the flies, the God of the gnats, the God of the Nile, the God of this, the God of that. All your gods are dead or stinking gods. You made them all up, and they're not real. But guess what? The real God's revealing himself. And now they're saying, you know what, we cannot deal with your God, leave. And so they get them to, to head on out of town. And the children of Israel, I love this, they responded in obedience. They did what the Lord had told them, and they went out. Verse 37, then the children of Israel journeyed to, from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. Now, that number could be looked at one of two ways. 600,000 men, that could be men and women, since they don't mention women, you know, say men besides women and children. If that's the case, there's about 1.5 million people. And if it's men, only men, and there's women and children besides, it's probably about 2 million people. But in either case, it's a lot of folks. Can you imagine being the pastor of the church, 1.5 million people? Well, it was Moses, right? He's taking them out, and there's 1.5 million people. And they're heading on out, and they're going out into the promised land. And we're going to see in the next several weeks that it's no picnic dealing with that big of a church you know i mean the thing about churches is none of them is perfect because they all got people in them amen you know I, they got pastors in them who are people who are are fallible and they got they got people in them and people murmur and complain and you know what I, you, you know, if you're trying to find the perfect church if it was perfect it ceased being perfect when you got there right as soon as you showed up it's not perfect anymore right you just change that if i show up it's not perfect anymore right and so can you imagine 1.5 2 million people just I try to get my, five, my, my four kids in the car sometimes. And it seems like, man, get it, and one gets in and two get out. And, you know, you're, and I'm thinking, 1.5, man, Mo, you need some help, bro. We need to pray for you, brother. I mean, obviously he's in heaven now. He doesn't need a prayer anymore. But, so this army goes marching out, two million people. Well, look who goes with them. And, and we're going to see in the coming chapters that this is going to cause problems. Look at verse 38. And a mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks, of, and, flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. This mixed multitude are non-Israelites. And they're people that are along for the ride. They've seen the hailstones. And they've seen the angel of death. And they see that the Israelites have taken the spoils. And that they're going out of town. And these people are jumping in. They're going along for the ride. And we're going to find out that they're going to cause nothing but problems later. They would become a snare. It says in, in Numbers, they would begin to lust after the things of Egypt. They would be, begin to complain and murmur against Moses. At least in Egypt we have leeks and onions. It's these guys, mixed multitude guys, right? Guys who don't truly serve God. And you know what? There's always, in the body of Christ, when God's moving, God's doing a great work, God's doing awesome things, there's always that mixed multitude that's along for a ride. Now I want to say this. I want Charles Manson to come to our church. I don't care who it is. They need Jesus, amen? I don't care what your background is. I don't care where you've come from. I want you to feel welcomed and loved and blessed, and I want you to be here, and you'll always be welcomed. Until you start, if you start doing something to harm the people that are here, then you got to go. But other than that, I want you here. But at the same time, when God's moving, there are always those that come along for the ride, and they're there to do one thing, be divisive and cause problems. And that's what this mixed multitude does. They're there to be divisive and cause problems and murmur and complain about everything. You know what? Again, 
You go to any church, you'll find something to complain about. But when we're walking with the Lord and we're filled with the Holy Spirit and we realize that, that men and women are involved and it's just people, we should come with a heart to serve, not to always be served. Amen? We should come saying, how can I minister? How can I love? How can I pour out my life on other people? Instead of coming and saying, man, those chairs are hard to that stinking church. You know what I mean? Right? Mm, complain. We can do that. Music's too loud. It's too soft. It's too quiet. It's too... I mean, I, I was at church one time. Poor Danny over in San Jose. Oh, by the way, Danny and Teresa had their baby today. They had a boy. Ten pounds. A oh, big boy. Teresa's small. Oh, big boy. But he's a worship leader at Calvary San Jose. But I was there one day when Danny's got two notes sitting on his desk from worship. And one says, the music is way too stinking loud. If you don't turn it down, I'm not coming back. And the other one said, the music was so quiet, I couldn't hear it. If you don't turn it up, I'm not coming back. <laughs> He's like, well, what do I do, Dave? Yeah. I, I go, leave it the same. Maybe they'll both leave. I don't know. I mean, you know what I mean? Murmurs and complainers, mixed multitude, coming along, looking to cause strife, not to bring blessing to anybody. And they baked unleavened cakes out of the dough, which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. So when they were leaving, there was, there was an urgency in their departure. And it was a picture of God's deliverance from bondage of sin, because it was unleavened bread. But note the urgency. And you know what? In our Christian walk, there should be an urgency. Amen? An urgency. Today's the day of salvation. If you have an opportunity to share your faith with somebody, don't wait till next week. We've all been guilty of waiting till next week. I know I have. More times than I can count, and it breaks my heart that it's true. And so often we're looking, we're making plans for 10 years down the road. Not that we shouldn't be frugal, but the reality is that we need to be right where we're supposed to be today, serving God with our whole heart. That's more important than anything else. Know what you're called to do and be faithful to it. Don't, don't worry about, and sometimes we're just so worried about, the, worry about this and that. There'd be some urgency. Lord, what do you want me to do? Let me do it with my whole heart. Sold out for you. Verse 40 and 41, we're almost done. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. So they spent 430 years in bondage. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on the very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Now the prophecy of their departing was prophesied in Genesis. And on the very day that God said they would depart, they departed. That's how the Bible works. You know, if you've been here more than one week, if the Bible says it, then it's going to happen exactly the way the Bible says it. And their departure happened exactly the way that God said that it would happen. Fulfilling prophecy in accordance with God's perfect plan. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord, bringing them out of the land of Egypt. That is the night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. So when they came out after 430 years and after they were delivered, from that point forward, that day would be a solemn day of remembrance. That day of Passover, of the angel of death passing over, of them abiding in the blood, of being in a place where the blood was covering them and, and shielding them from, from the uh, judgment to come, and then the, the feast that came after, and them heading toward the promised land. Now we know that on their way to the promised land, they're going to blow it. We already know that. And, you know, but they didn't know that when they left, right? I mean, when they left, they're all, oh, we're going to the promised land. Well, for them, the promised land was wandering around in the wilderness over and over and over again. And the reason that happened was that Moses goes up on, on Mount Sinai, and what do they do? They make a golden calf. You know, were you, help, help me out, weren't there not ten plagues? Were you guys there for those? I'm just wondering, right? Didn't they, didn't they smoke the cattle in one of those plagues, or actually two of them? Didn't they wipe those things out? And then he comes down from the mountain, and they're all worshiping, and they're in, in debauchery, and it's out of control. And Aaron, his brother, who was there, right, says, oh yeah, we just put the gold in this golden calf came popping out of there. 
Oh, dude, you're killing me. And so what happens here is that, but they were headed to the land of promise, and then along the way, they got impatient. And you know, we can do the same thing. We can get impatient. We want God, you know, I want, I want, I want heaven, I want right now. You know, Lord, I want, I, want to, I want everything to be perfect in my life right now. But you know what? That sanctification process is where we grow. I'm going to read the last eight verses. I know we're over. Let me just read it. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. The same reason we don't, when we have communion, communion is, not, is a family observance. Communion is something that is done by believers only. Why? Because it's a remembrance of what Christ did for us. And if you're not born again, Paul said if you take communion, you take it unworthily. Okay? And so when we take communion, it's a family observance. And again, no foreigner was to eat of the Passover. Verse 44, But every man's servant who is bought for money, you have him circumcised and he may eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat. So a foreigner and somebody who's not part of the family, been grafted in, they're not to eat of it. In one house it shall be eaten, you shall not carry any of the flesh outside of the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. The breaking of bones is a prophetic picture of Jesus Christ upon the cross. When he was crucified in John 19, 33 and 36, it says, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. So when they, when they ate of this lamb, they were not to break any of its bones. Why? Because it was the lamb, the Passover lamb, that pointed to Jesus Christ. Verse 47. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover, let all the males be circumcised. And let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. So there's not two different laws. There's one law. And everybody keeps that one law. There's one faith. There's one hope. There's one truth. There's one salvation. And for someone to become grafted in, to become a Jew, there were three things that they had to do. One, they had to be baptized. How many of you knew that? That they baptized prior to Jesus being baptized. But they only baptized Gentiles. When John came, he baptized Jews. And that's where everybody was blown away. He's baptizing Jews. What are you talking about? And they all came out to see this baptism of Jews because they thought, we're already born into it. We don't need to be baptized. Gentile, yeah, you need to baptize them. But we don't need to be because we're already of that tribe. We're already one of his children. They had to be circumcised. And then they had to partake of the Passover feast. And all these point to Jesus. Baptism, death, burial, and resurrection. Circumcision, circumcision of your heart. you transforming, changing, becoming a new creation in Christ. Passover, a picture of the Lamb of God. Verse 50 and 51. Thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. Now, Hav, you come back up and close with a worship song. So in review, it's on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. A picture of our Savior's redemptive work delivering us from sin and the celebration that comes. The preparation for Passover, they killed the lamb, the picture of Jesus. Sprinkling of blood in the doorpost, a picture of the cross. Those who remain in the house under the covering of Christ's blood were delivered. That the only place of safety is when we abide in Christ. We saw the death of the firstborn, the tenth plague, that he wouldn't let the firstborn of Israel go. The firstborn of God, Israel, goes, so the firstborn must die. The same is true for us. Somebody's got to die for us to get into heaven. Somebody's got to die. And somebody's got to die at the end of in judgment for us either way. Either we die or we let him die for us. And then lastly, we see that in Exodus, the fulfilling of prophecy 
430 years later, and they were delivered from bondage after the Passover. And it's only after the shed blood can we know freedom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and we praise you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the deliverance that comes. Lord, only from you. And we just ask, Father God, that we would walk in the fullness of your spirit, that we would walk and respond to your word the way the Israelites did in the text tonight, by worshiping you and then obeying you. And Father, just thank you for each person who's here. I thank you for their uh, patience tonight as we went a little long. Just bless them all, I pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and close the worship song. Mm -hmm.